Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the lynching of Emmett Till. But first, your true crime headlines. Americans have taken to the streets in cities across the country to protest the murder of George Floyd at the hands of four Minnesota police officers. Peaceful protests have taken place in cities large and small, despite the continued threat of a global pandemic, and several cities have seen days of uprising, leading mayors across America to impose curfews and request the assistance of the National Guard. In Minneapolis, former officer Derek Chauvin was arrested last week and initially charged with third-degree murder for the killing of George Floyd. Chauvin pressed his knee into the neck of George Floyd as he lay on the ground, handcuffed behind his back, for nearly nine minutes, despite Floyd's repeated pleas that he could not breathe. An independent autopsy conducted at the request of the Floyd family has concluded that his cause of death was homicide caused by asphyxia due to neck and back compression that led to a lack of blood flow to the brain. Prosecutors announced this week that charges against Chauvin were upgraded to second-degree murder. The upgraded charge states that Chauvin killed Floyd without intent in the course of committing assault in the third degree, according to the complaint. Three other officers at the scene were also fired from their jobs following Floyd's death, but did not initially face criminal charges. During the press conference to announce Chauvin's upgraded charges, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison also announced charges against the other three former officers, identified as Thomas Lane, J. Alexander Kang, and Tu Tao. All three men face felony charges of aiding and abetting second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. All were taken into custody, and each of the four men are currently being held on $1 million bail. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the lynching of Emmett Till. But first, a quick break. Are you experiencing stress? Anxiety? Do you have chronic pain? Or are you having trouble sleeping? You're not alone. If you're searching for something that might help, I want to tell you about Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep that helps you reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness naturally. And it's easy to take. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Finding your right dose is personal. And everyone's dose is different. So leave room to experiment with feels over the course of a week or so. You might need to take more or less to get the effects that you're after. So start small and work your way up. Don't worry, feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, no hangover, and no addiction. But if you're new to CBD and you need a little guidance, feels has you covered with real human support. They'll answer all of your questions on their free CBD hotline. Join the Feels community now and get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order 
and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels is helping me feel less stressed every day and helping me sleep every night, and it can help you too. Become a member today. Go to feels.com mm and get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash M-M to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. That's feels dot com slash M-M. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On August 24, 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black teenager from Chicago, was visiting relatives in Money, Mississippi, a tiny hamlet in the Jim Crow-era Deep South, when he and his cousin went to Bryant's grocery store to buy candy. As he left the store with his cousin, Emmett whistled at 21-year-old Carolyn Bryant, a white woman who was working behind the counter. Carolyn Bryant and her husband Roy owned the store. He really had no sense of danger, recalled Emmett's cousin, Simeon Wright, who was with him that day. He was warned not to do anything like that, how he was supposed to act. I think what he did was trying to impress us. He said, You guys might be afraid to do something like this, but not me. He had no idea how dangerous that was because when he saw our reaction, he got scared too. Four days later, in the early morning hours of August 28, 1955, Emmett was abducted from his uncle's home. His assailants, the white woman's husband, 24-year-old Roy Bryant, and his half-brother, 36-year-old John Milam, pulled him out of his cousin's bed at gunpoint and made the teenager get dressed. Emmett's aunt pleaded with them and even offered the men money, but they refused. His uncle, Moses Wright, a local preacher, explained to the men that Emmett was from up north and didn't know any better. How old are you, preacher? John Milam asked. Sixty-four, he replied. Milam threatened Moses that if he told anyone, he wouldn't live to see sixty-five. The men marched Emmett outside to the truck and asked, Was this the boy? A woman's voice from inside replied, Yes. Emmett's uncle waited and waited for him to return. They drove around town looking for him, but he was nowhere to be found. The sheriff, George Smith, was finally contacted. He questioned Bryant and Milam. They admitted that they had taken Emmett but claimed that they had released him the same night in front of Bryant's store. The two men were arrested for kidnapping. Word spread that Emmett was missing, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, began to investigate. They disguised themselves as cotton pickers and went into the cotton fields in search of any information that might help find Emmett. But three days after his abduction... Emmett Till's mutilated body was pulled out of the Tallahatchie River, tied with barbed wire to a cotton gin fan. He had been stripped naked, beaten, his eye was gouged out, and he was shot in the head. He was unrecognizable. 
Emmett's uncle identified him by the only thing that he was wearing, a silver ring. The next day, on September 1st, 1955, Medgar Evers and the NAACP issued a press release. Quote, It would appear from this lynching that the state of Mississippi has decided to maintain white supremacy by murdering children. The killers of the boy felt free to lynch him because there is in the entire state no restraining influence of decency. The NAACP sent a telegram to the governor of Mississippi, Hugh White. Quote, All decent citizens throughout the nation call upon you to use all the powers of your office to see that the lynchers of 14-year-old Emmett Lewis Till are brought to justice. We cannot believe that responsible officials of the state of Mississippi condone the murdering of children on any provocation. The governor replied, Parties charged with the murder are in jail, and I have every reason to believe the courts will do their duty in prosecution. Mississippi does not condone such conduct. The lynching of Emmett Till sparked outrage across the country. Local newspapers denounced the murders, and the county deputy sheriff, John Cawthron, stated, quote, The white people around here feel pretty mad about the way that poor little boy was treated, and they won't stand for this. But this was not Mississippi's first lynching. Far from it. Mississippi had the highest number of lynchings in the South. Between 1882 and 1968, Mississippi lynched 581 black residents, maybe more, and white supremacist Mississippians were known to gather by the hundreds to witness them. In 1908, a mob of 2,000 whites seized Eli Piggott, a black man accused of raping a white woman, and hanged him from a telegraph pole. Twenty years later, Stanley and James Bearden were taken from a local jail, shot, dragged behind a car, and hanged. And the very same year that Emmett Till was killed, in 1955, a white man assassinated Lamar Smith, a black World War I veteran and voting rights activist, in broad daylight on the county courthouse lawn. In 1963, Medgar Evers, who led the investigation with the NAACP into Emmett Till, would be killed as well. His assassination would inspire Nina Simone's song, Mississippi Goddamn. Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, halted attempts to bury her son in Mississippi and demanded that his body be returned to Chicago. When her son's body arrived, she decided that the funeral would be open casket. I wanted the world to see what they did to my baby. There was just no way I could describe what was in that box. No way, she said. A glass-topped coffin was made for the purpose. Tens of thousands of people came to view Emmett's body. Thousands more attended the funeral. She wanted the world to see what those men had done to her son, because no one would have believed it. Emmett's cousin, Simeon Wright, recalled. And when they saw what happened... This motivated a lot of people that were standing what we call on the fence against racism. It encouraged them to get in the fight and do something about it. 
Photographs of Emmett's body in his casket appeared in black publications Jet Magazine and the Chicago Defender. For almost a century, African Americans were lynched with regularity and impunity. Now, thanks to a mother's determination, the public could no longer pretend to ignore what they couldn't see. On September 6, 1955, Emmett Till was buried. As news of his lynching and pictures of his body spread across the United States, the tone in Mississippi newspapers changed dramatically. They falsely reported riots in the funeral home in Chicago. Rumors of an invasion of outraged blacks and northern whites were printed throughout the state. Bryant and Milam appeared in photos wearing their military uniforms smiling, and Carolyn Bryant's beauty and virtue were extolled. On September 3rd, Tallahatchie County Sheriff Clarence Strider, who had initially positively identified Emmett Till's body and stated that the case against Millam and Bryant was pretty good, suddenly announced that he had doubts that the body pulled from the Tallahatchie River was that of Emmett Till. He now speculated that the boy was probably still alive and suggested that the body had been planted by the NAACP. The trial was held in September of 1955 and lasted for five days. The courtroom was packed with 280 spectators. Black attendees sat in segregated sections, including black reporters who were segregated away from the white press. An all-white jury were allowed to drink beer on duty, and many white male spectators were armed. The defense cast doubt on the identity of the body pulled from the river. They questioned whether Emmett Till was dead at all. A doctor from Greenwood testified for the defense that the body was too decomposed to identify, and therefore had been in the water too long for it to be Emmett Till. Sheriff Strider testified for the defense his theory that Emmett was still alive and that the body retrieved from the river was white. Judge Curtis Swango allowed Carolyn Bryant to testify, but not in front of the jury after the prosecution objected that her testimony was irrelevant to Emmett Till's abduction and murder. On the stand, she claimed that Emmett had grabbed her and verbally threatened her. She said that while she was unable to utter the unprintable word he had used, he said he had done something with white women before. Then she added, I was just scared to death. Emmett's mother Mamie testified that she had instructed her son to watch his manners in Mississippi, and that should a situation ever come to his being asked to get on his knees and to ask forgiveness of a white person, he should do it without a thought. The defense questioned her identification of her son in the casket in Chicago and a $400 life insurance policy that she had taken out on him. Emmett's uncle Moses identified Bryant and Millam in court as the ones who came into his home and took Emmett that night. An eyewitness, Willie Reed, testified in court that he saw Emmett in the back of Bryant and Milam's pickup truck. 
and that he had heard Emmett being beaten, screaming, Mama, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. In their closing statements, the prosecution said that what Emmett Till did was wrong, but that his action warranted a spanking, not murder. They mocked and condemned the sheriff and doctor's statements that amounted to conspiracy and passionately called for justice. The defense told the jury that their, quote, forefathers would turn over in their graves if they convicted Bryant and Milam. On September 23rd, after a 67-minute deliberation, the all-white, all-male jury acquitted both defendants. One juror said, quote, If we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. Four months later, in an interview published in Look magazine in January of 1956, the two men admitted to and bragged about murdering Emmett Till. Protected by double jeopardy laws, Bryant and Milam claimed, in a classic case of victim-blaming, that they had only intended to beat Emmett Till and throw him off of an embankment into the river to scare him. But while they were beating the teenager, they claimed Emmett called them bastards, declared that he was as good as they were, and said that he had sexual encounters with white women. The following quote will be censored for his repeated use of a racial slur. Quote, Well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never heard a in my life. I like in their place. I know how to work them. But I just decided it was time a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, gonna stay in their place. Ain't gonna vote where I live. If they did, they'd control the government. They ain't gonna go to school with my kids, and when a gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country, and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed and listened to that throw that poison at me and I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you, I'm gonna make an example of you, just so everyone can know how me and my folks stand. J.W. Milam, Look Magazine, 1956. The two men were paid $4,000 for the interview. The lynching the photos, the shocking acquittal, and the subsequent admission of guilt galvanized the black community. In response, publications like the Chicago Defender urged their readers to react to the acquittal by voting in large numbers to counter the disenfranchisement of blacks in Mississippi by a white-dominated legislature, a model which other southern states would follow, excluding hundreds of thousands of citizens from their politics. The NAACP asked Mamie Till to tour the country telling her son's story. And Emmett Till's lynching became a catalyst for the civil rights movement. The white men who lynch Negroes worship Christ, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said in a speech at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. 
That jury in Mississippi, which a few days ago in the Emmett Till case freed two white men from what might be considered one of the most brutal and inhuman crimes of the 20th century, worships Christ. The perpetrators of many of the world's greatest evils in our society worship Christ. This trouble is that all people, like the Pharisee, go to church regularly, they pay their tithes and offerings, and observe religiously the various ceremonial requirements. The trouble with these people, however, is that they worship Christ emotionally and not morally. They cast his ethical and moral insights behind the gushing smoke of emotional adoration and ceremonial piety. Eight years later, Dr. King would deliver his iconic I Have a Dream speech on the anniversary of Emmett Till's murder, saying, in part, I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom. After Bryant and Milam admitted to Look Magazine that they had killed Emmett Till, many of their friends and supporters in Mississippi abandoned them. Blacks boycotted the Bryant shop, which went bankrupt and closed. Over the years, Milam was charged with offenses such as assault and battery, writing bad checks, and using a stolen credit card. He died of spinal cancer on December 30, 1980, at the age of 61. Bryant worked as a welder until increasing blindness forced him to give it up. He and Carolyn divorced, and he opened a new store in Mississippi. In 1984 and 1988, he was convicted of food stamp fraud. In a 1985 interview, Bryant denied that he had killed Emmett Till, but said, quote, If Emmett Till hadn't got out of line, it probably wouldn't have happened to him. Bryant lived a private life and refused to be photographed or to reveal the exact location of his store explaining, quote, This new generation is different, and I don't want to worry about a bullet some dark night. He died of cancer on September 1st, 1994, at the age of 63. In 2005, Emmett Till's body was exhumed, and DNA from relatives confirmed once and for all that it was indeed Emmett Till. It had extensive cranial damage, two broken wrists, a broken left femur, and metallic fragments found in the skull consistent with bullets from a 45 caliber gun. When the first highway marker remembering Emmett Till was erected in 2006, it was defaced with KKK and subsequently covered over with black paint. In 2007, eight historical markers were placed at sites associated with Emmett Till's lynching. In 2008, the marker at the river spot where Emmett Till's body was found was torn down. A replacement sign received more than 100 bullet holes. That same year, at age 72, Carolyn Bryant admitted to author Timothy Tyson that she had lied during her testimony. Emmett never grabbed her or uttered a single obscenity. She added, quote, Nothing that boy did 
could ever justify what happened to him. Patrick Weems, project coordinator at the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, a museum in Sumner, Mississippi, said, quote, I think until you break the silence, there is still that implied consent to the false narrative set forth in 1955. It matters that she recanted. In June of 2018, another replacement marker was installed, and in July, it was again vandalized by bullets. Three University of Mississippi students were suspended from their fraternity after posing in front of the bullet-riddled marker with guns and posting it on Instagram. In March of 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice stated that it was reopening the investigation into Emmett Till's death due to unspecified new information. In 2019, a fourth sign was erected. This one is made of steel, weighs 500 pounds, is over one inch thick, and is said by its manufacturer to be indestructible. This has been Murder Minute. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.